Hey, Risso here with George Mason University. Uh, welcome to a, another podcast episode. Uh, today we are in our article club number three, and uh, we're going to highlight an article that was just published in 2019 in Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. Uh, the article title is Learning to Use Teaching for Personal and Social Responsibility Through Action Research. And uh, I am joined with uh, Kevin Richards from the University of Illinois. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Risto. And I am also uh, joined by Michael Hemphill from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, um, who is actually the one that picked this article. So, um, Michael, can you give a kind of overview of what uh, led you to picking this specific article for the article club? Sure. I'm happy to be in conversation with both of you. The article focuses on the Hellison TPSR model, and that's been an interest of mine going back to graduate school. My dissertation really focused on a kind of applied process for professional development that gave teachers reflective tools to uh, reflect on their practice over an extended period of time, in addition to attending kind of a one-day workshop. And this article, the first one I've seen in a couple of years that kind of tied into that idea of action research and letting teachers kind of have some agency in their professional development. So I'm just really excited to read about it. And I know the uh, I'm friends with Paul Wright and know that he does really good work on this topic. So I felt like it's something we could all learn from and enjoy discussing. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed that, um, especially in kind of the lead up to the article. It talked a lot about how um, action research hasn't been implemented in um, in a lot of the research uh, in the field of physical education. And I know there there are some people that uh, have done it. I know uh, Ash Casey has uh, some great articles. I use those actually in my master's program. Um, but do you mm. think that um, the reason action research isn't published as much is that a lot of times it is on a smaller scale, harder to publish, more, I don't want to say more informal research in in PE, but what do you think the um, reason is that it's not being published as much? Yeah, that, that, mm-hmm. I think that that's an interesting question. Um, if I could just throw something out uh, real quick, I, I you know, I, I, it, yes, you know, if you think about like the relationship between quantitative and quantitative research there's kind of been this tension in the past um but but i really feel as if our field has come to understand and appreciate qualitative research even you know a practitioner focused inquiry like this you know but maybe some of that still kind of lingers but the other thing that i think happens here too is that it's also much more intensive and it takes it takes a lot of time and it takes, in this case, you know, the commitment of teachers to to get on board and to go through um, this professional development that's, you know, very intimate, very self-driven um, and focused. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I throw that out there is that, you know, self-study, which um, is kind of a, a type of practitioner research, a little bit different than, than action research as we see it in this particular um article but still very kind of self-focused uh you know improvement driven um you know you you still like that that's become much more common and much more popular in in peat circles and so i think the question is how do we replicate the momentum that we've gotten in higher education around practitioner focused inquiry and, and get 
K-12 practitioners on board with that. Yeah. I mean, a couple things. It's a really interesting question. It struck me as I'm reading this article that um, it was an intensive process. It was time intensive. Um, I mentioned doing a similar process with my dissertation, and I know that given my current job responsibilities, I I would not be able to do a study like that because you're just back and forth to the schools engaging with the teachers so often and when you you say that time intensity you're talking about a small scale and so there were two participants in the study mm-hmm. and sometimes we feel like this pressure to kind of have you know large number of participants so that we can show impact uh, another a couple of quick points as well is that it's i think it's hard to like package the findings of this research in a way that mm. we could invest in it yeah. And so, so I'm convinced. I, I really like this article, and I'm convinced that uh, the teachers learned uh, and impacted their practice in a positive way. But I don't know how I would say to someone, you know, you should invest in this so that we can uh, give this experience to more teachers. Like I don't know what that would look like. And right. then finally, what is the? Um, it just required so much buy-in. Like you had to have these critical friends in the school that. Um, that'll kind of help you reflect and observe your teaching mm-hmm. and support from others that, so the stars have to align to make this uh, work in practice. But that's a question I think we should continue to reflect on in our field because this work has a lot of promise. Yeah. And you use the word there, Michael, I really kind of latched onto impact. Um, and I think impact can mean a variety of different things, but you know, one of the reasons why I find, work like this to be so impactful and, and i got this reading through the results like you you see the struggles uh, and the challenges that, that people have to go through in order to learn about adopt and then successfully implement a new way of teaching especially when it when it pulls you away from kind of what you've known and in physical education you know we, we continue to have a lot of teacher-directed, teacher-centered practices out there, and that's what our te- that's what our teachers experienced during their own physical education growing up. And so then they transition into schools, and to learn something uh, or into teacher education programs even before they go into schools, and then the, the process of learning something that drives them so far away from what they've known uh, can mm-hmm. be scary, it can be challenging, it can be difficult, um, and, and the messiness of that is something that I don't know that people necessarily anticipate. Um, my, uh, my doctoral student, Corey Ivey, and I did some work in Alabama. We had um, uh, some, pre, uh, some well, pre-service teachers who were learning to use TPSR, uh, but then Tori also had to learn to use it. Um, and she did a self-study on that process that we're getting ready to submit. But it was difficult for her. And so looking at this study, I, it really resonated with, with my own learning to use TPSR and how I see others learning to use it. And I think it's helpful to have that out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it brings a bigger issue of just integrating curriculum models effectively. I mean, these, right. these two teachers were really motivated. They they sought out these action research studies. They had researchers working with them and they decided to do this action research project. One of them had that senior leadership team supporting. The other um, you know, also had one of the researchers there as the critical friend. But right. I'm just wondering, what about a normal teacher? Like how do they yes. learn how to teach TPSR when they don't have that support, when they 
see a webinar or hear this at a conference and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, I'm going to run TPSR this year in my school. How, what's well, the follow through on that, you know? Well, that just further challenges everything that we know about professional development. You know, I, I think a lot of professional development programs are well-intentioned, but they don't provide the level of depth and support that teachers really need to, to truly train, to change their practice successfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, I like it, what they said. They, um, they talked about and they cited a lot of Kathy Armour's work on this, but that teachers tend to go for professional learning when it aligns with their beliefs and when they can see that it's right. improving their students. And that's an important mm-hmm. thing when we're in CPD, continuing professional development, not just a professional development one-off set. And, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and, you know, the, the first part of what you said there was, though, harkens back to the point that I was making before, too. You know, they, they tend to latch on and to really invest in CPD when it aligns with or confirms their beliefs or, you know, what I would tend to call subjective theories. Um, and, but when that happens, we're not really shifting practice. So getting out of that zone where you're moving away from something comfortable to adopting and really becoming a, a practitioner of something that at one point was quite uncomfortable mm-hmm. is a difficult transition. Um, and, and again, because the way of the, the physical education is structured in many schools, we tend to have more of those direct uh, teacher-centered pedagogies. And that's what our pre-service teachers come into programs comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one, one, one thing that helped is seemed like both of the teachers had this, um, checklist, this implementation checklist that they use and then their critical friend would use. And it seemed like, um, it, you know, I've seen the checklist, so it's a, it's literally a checklist. You could do it in 30 seconds, but that it provokes conversations that are around the TPSR model but yet can go in whatever direction you want them to so that they're contextually situated within the school. And I don't think this solves, you know, this is the answer to the big question of how we help teachers learn TPSR, but it seems like one way is having a couple of practical tools that they can use as a starting point and then trust their ability to direct their own learning in a way that is best for their students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did, I did find, um, I found it interesting of the different choices of the critical friends. One of them was a researcher that was there eight out of the 13 or whatever lessons that, that were taught. Um, and that researcher then had feedback sessions at the end, but the other was a teacher with only two years of teaching experience and very limited, if any experience of TPSR doing that same uh, feedback. So I wonder how different those situations were. The first being mm-hmm. the researcher is a, probably a really good critical friend to have. But two, yeah. the teacher is actually the critical friend that you would probably do if if this was to be implemented wider. Right. That's the. Yeah. I'm not going to call a random researcher and say, "Hey, can you donate? You know, eight days of your, you know, semester to come out and watch me teach and." and do this, not everybody has access to a researcher who is interested in this curriculum model or competent. But I also feel as if there's some real benefits and strengths to to working with it with a peer who is a, a critical friend, a peer in the true sense. And, you know, Michael, that, that reminds me a little bit of, of your dissertation research. 
because you had the teachers um, observe themselves with a TPSR checklist and then provide each other feedback, right? Right. We use the TEAR instrument, yeah. which is a little more expensive, but yes, the same uh, indicators. Um, and so you found that to be quite helpful, if I remember the results from that uh, that that study from your DIFs, um, that, that the process of kind of going through and giving feedback helped the teachers to learn about TPSR uh, in addition to receiving feedback from others. Right. And it was really an effort, too, to decentralize the the researcher as the expert, so to speak. And so if the teacher is reflecting and then a peer teacher is observing, then there's two data points coming from a teacher and one from the researcher. And it, right. it kind of shifts that balance in their direction. Another quick interesting point about that, Risto, is um, one of the critical friends had a name. I assume it's a pseudonym. And the other one wasn't identified. It was just like you know, described as she. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure if that was indicative of uh, a certain level of involvement or, or what that might be, but it was just a little detail as a, a researcher that made me wonder, um, you know, why wouldn't you just give her a name and and go forward? And so maybe there was some concern with that person being identified or oh, something along those lines. Mm, interesting. Right. Yeah, there were a couple things in the paper that, you know, I would think because they were so different, one of them working with six to eight students who are deemed, quote, troublemakers in school, being set completely, you know, off to the side in their own, you know, physical education class versus the other teacher trying to implement this in a, um, in, in a normal class. And I think... Um, I, I just think that maybe structuring it in two cases and explaining both of them individually, because I think it's so different. And action research is so different from case to case to case. So maybe maybe explaining it in that way. I, I definitely understand, um, you know, showing the, the crossover between the two. But I found it um, I, I found the situations very different. You know, and I think that's part of action research. And like we do, we have an online uh, master's program at Mason for health and physical education. And in their first semester, or basically their second semester after summer, they come in to my class and we do an action research project. Um, and I have you know, 14 to 16 students in that class and all of them are doing their own action research project. And, yep. and the amount of effort they put in is legitimately like what they would do in a master's thesis or you know i i look at it in hindsight and i go man some of these are very publishable they did everything correct except they didn't do an irb because it was based more of a learning project but they're choosing validated instruments they're taking field notes and and you know i looked at at least eight of the 13, 14 that are really, really solid, but they are all over the board. And I just, I wouldn't know where to, where to submit a single case of, you know, one, one teacher working with 15 students, you know, over, 
you know, half a semester? Like, is there, yeah. is there an audience for that? I mean, I, th- I think so. I think so. And if there isn't, then I think that's an, an indictment against the academy, to be completely honest. Because if, if the purpose of research ultimately is to impact practice, then even though action research doesn't align with traditional research norms, you're going to be hard-pressed to, to convince me that, that action research does not have a, a very strong impact on practice. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think that the, the conversation about breadth versus depth is a different one, though. Yeah. Um, and something like this, like in, in, in this article that we read, there's a very deep impact on two teachers. And now that might, um, that, 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 hopefully will have then, you know, an impact on the students that they're teaching. And so you kind of have that ripple out effect. But if you think about, you know, more traditional forms of research, even that which involve, um, uh, you know, like interventions, professional development interventions, where you have very large numbers of teachers, you might not get the same level of, of depth, but you're, you're hopefully having a wider impact. So you have a, a, a more breadth. Yeah. Mm. So, I'm, I'm not sure if both of you consider yourself TPSR experts, but I, I consider you both TPSR experts being in. I, I, the... still, I still feel like an outsider. Uh, and that's not because, that's not, that's not because uh, anybody's ever made me feel that way. You know, I, I got into this because of, uh, because of Michael, really, and then fell in love with it along the way. And, and I've done some TPSR, but I don't know that I'd call myself an expert. But both of you are going to or have been to the TPSR Alliance. You have both published peer-reviewed research articles in this. So you're more of an expert than me. So I will ask you this question. So I look at TPSR as aligning very well with elementary schools. And that's where I teach it in my elementary methods course. This project was done on the secondary level. Hellison's work, a lot of it has been at the secondary level. So is this, does this fit into elementary better, better or secondary or how do you, how do you see uh, TPSR just K to 12? Where does it, where does it fit best? Love that question. Yeah. So it's a good question. I I think you're right. It's been uh, more with secondary programs and all, all of my work has been secondary. I, I currently work at a high school doing a TPSR and restorative practice program. Um, we tend to emphasize student voice with um, TPSR and leadership. And the example of the leadership that we're often thinking about are things like, you know, lead a station, be a team captain, um, kind of sophisticated, complex roles. So those things, not to say they can be done in elementary school, they can but they tend to lean towards secondary where kids have developed more of a voice and maybe have a level of confidence to be a group leader or understand how to engage in groups when someone else is a leader. So I think, um, and the other piece of that is just, you know, TPSR was developed through the field work uh, led by Tom Martinick and Don Hellison, and they both did programs in secondary settings, mostly after school, um, and then Tom has done some work with elementary through his project effort program. So it's just been predominantly secondary. I have to be honest, I haven't thought about it a lot in elementary context. Um, I think Brian Clotson and Doris Watson have a textbook on, 
on kind of doing it in that setting that would be worth looking at for someone who's, who's introduced in it, like you in elementary school. Um, but certainly I think it can be applicable and adapted uh, to many contexts as, you know, Hellison really emphasized that teachers should take this model and apply it to their context and adapt it in ways that meet the needs of, of kids. Yeah. And Kevin, so yeah. where, where do you feel that fits in? Cause I, as I understand, you've done more work at the elementary level with it. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a very elementary-minded person generally. Um, and so uh, we, we kind of developed this partnership with an elementary school in Alabama when I was there. And they were looking to kind of continue to work on some social-emotional learning stuff. And I sold them on TPSR. And the whole time felt a little bit strange about doing that because I felt like I was selling them on a secondary uh, physical education model that, that I was then going to come down and use at the elementary level. Um, and what was really, really interesting about it, though, is that um, when we started to conceptualize responsibility goals as skills, and so skills in the same sense that we conceptualize teaching, you know, skill themes in an elementary physical education environment, um, and you have your skill themes and you have cues that go along to teach those themes and you have this progression of learning along, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a Graham Holt, Helen Parker person. So children moving, uh, you have this progression from pre-control through proficiency where skills continue to get more and more difficult. When we started to think about TPSR goals in that way, then it became a lot easier to understand how you would bring it down to the elementary level because we just presented them as these developmental skills that had cues that would go along with them. Um, and so, you know, for example, if you have a partner task and one partner is giving the other partner feedback, skill cues for that could be, you know, say something nice, uh, um, watch the whole time, uh, and, um, and, and give advice. So those could be three simple cues that go along with how you would teach um, students to give each other feedback. Uh, and so that really kind of started to click for us. Uh, and we interviewed the pre-service teachers at the end of the at the end of the program. And Risto, they said the same thing that you're saying. They they said we this is an elementary program. We don't understand how you would do it in secondary mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So one of the one of the other things that I saw in here was that um, these, or at least one of the teacher, I'm not sure if both, but they had um, experience working with uh, restorative practice. So I know Michael, you have um, a paper out on restorative youth sport where, and you're currently working with implementing restorative practice with TPSR. Can you explain how those two models kind of fit together or your experience trying to merge them together? Yeah, so it was one of the interesting things about this paper to me that just left me wanting more information. Um, so it, if I could just step back for a moment, there's this whole movement around social and emotional skills in schools, and it appears to be an international movement, um, as they cited in this paper. And so what we're seeing is that TPSR is providing a really good opportunity for physical education to get into that conversation and connect to whatever the social and emotional uh, kind of brand is of a school. It sounds like it, at these two schools, they were using restorative practices, um, which is this model that really emphasizes relationship building uh, through, through building trust with students. 
and then has this kind of explicit recognition built in it that conflict is a part of relationships and it's natural, it's normal. And so we should kind of anticipate that those things happen and prepare students to deal with resolving conflict um, effectively. And it has this like broader view of discipline than just like, you know, what's the punishment going to be and thinks about, you know, what was it that went wrong and what harm did that cause to the community and the people that were impacted? Mm -hmm. Um, That's just a cliff notes version. But what, I guess what I was seeing here is the the teachers really seem to think about it as discipline. And one of them even re- uh, described it as we use restorative discipline here. And so just like TPSR, restorative practices is one of those models that it, it has various components and people take it and implement it in different ways. I, I would suggest in its purest form, it's, um, it's not about discipline. Um, and I thought, just to give an example of what I mean, there's a, a four-day training that you can go through by an international organization on restorative practices. You don't talk about discipline until the third day of the training. So the first two are all about proactive relationship building with kids through some kind of basic everyday practices on day one. And day two would be the circle practice, which is the most fundamental restorative practice. We do see a lot of schools that kind of just reduce it to that discipline side, and and you lose that essential ingredient of positive relationships. What what, one? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I I was just going to say, with all that said, this what I what I think what I think happens here is. You know, they have what I assume is kind of a restorative disciplinary emphasis, and TPSR gives you that opportunity to provide that proactive side of things that maybe the teachers weren't connecting to. So now they're doing explicit relationship building um, through their teaching and not only kind of drawing on restorative, a restorative toolkit when there's a behavior issue was my read on things. Yeah. Um, so I, I, this is a really interesting conversation to me, um, because I've, I've thought, um, for some time now, since you and I, Michael, have started to have conversations about restorative practices, I have, I've felt as if restorative practice is the answer to the question, how do we manage student behavior effectively within TPSR? Because a lot of traditional, um, a lot of traditional, uh, uh, management practices that we see in physical education spaces really don't align with the student-centered developmental humanistic TPSR model. So mm-hmm. what, what you're saying about discipline, I think, makes sense. Um, but if you take it a step back, because discipline, the way that I think you're using it, implies reaction. So mm-hmm. this, this rule was broken, and we need to respond to that in some way. Um, But if you take a step back and talk about classroom management in a broader sense, that Mm -hmm. that kind of includes this umbrella of both preventative and reactive management strategies so that you first start off by setting a positive tone within the gym, um, making sure that rules are understood, developing relationships, kind of that culture. um, But then also and that'll prevent a lot of management issues. Um, but and then in those cases where you do have transgressions and you have to have a reaction, you also need that toolkit to say, okay, well, this rule was broken. What do we do about that? 
Um, and, and I've talked to some people um, who have done or seen PPSR, and one of the biggest challenges that they have, I think, is understanding how you do classroom management in a way that aligns with the ethos of TPSR. And I think restorative practices is a legitimate answer to that question. Yeah, I, I agree in a, a couple other quick points. So, it would, and that's why I think it, when we do these papers on SEL and, and TPSR or other topics, I think it's just really important to understand what the school's approach to SEL is. Right. And I think this is where the authors run into that challenge of like, you only get 28 pages for your journal article. And it was so important to put the information about professional development and PPSR that, I mean, you just don't have time or space to do everything that's really important. Um, but it would have been good to understand what that context of restorative practice is. One challenge that they identified with TPSR that's also true with restorative is you, you just really have to commit time and space to building relationships and really promoting life skills. And in PE, you're often conflicted between that and getting kids active and giving them opportunities to be engaged in the content. Uh, particularly if your class is, you know, say 40 minutes long or something like that, which I think the swimming class in this article, they ended up having about 40 minutes per class. Right. So that's really tough if you want to get them, you know, some real time for swimming and, and the coaching and kind of the technical stuff, but that kind of explicit focus on restorative relationship building in TPSR. The final point, the authors acknowledged, you know, a lot of TPSR work has been done in uh, these after-school settings that might have a lot more time right. and a lot smaller groups. And so I don't think we know yet how to do TPSR in a PE class that might have, you know, 30, 35 kids or more um, in, you know, less than an hour of time and you're covering different objectives. I think that's a question we still need to kind of entertain and just kind of remind ourselves that a lot of the TPSR research has just been limited by the context where it's smaller in nature and conducive to doing the type of work that we value. And I think that that's a really strong point, Michael, um, especially about, you know, how do we negotiate the focus between FDL uh, and, uh, in physical activity, especially when we're, we're, we're in a physical education environment where, you know, we have, um, goals or objectives driven by our national standards that, that do focus on SEL related concepts. But we also often feel as if there's this duty to, to make sure that we're, we're meeting and, uh, and or succeeding our physical activity goals, perhaps sometimes defined as time, sometimes defined in terms of time, um, What's interesting to me, though, about about approaches like TPSR, and I found this in the after-school program that we ran in Alabama, was that at first, trying to do TPSR, trying to do circles, um, really, really decreased the amount of time that we had available for physical activity. I mean, I remember the very first day, Tori and I were in that gym. We spent 35 out of 40 minutes trying to get the kids to sit with us in a circle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so there's that huge sacrifice. But I would just argue that that that, that that's a an investment, and that it's an investment that that pays off dividends once you have that culture built around TPSR and/or restorative practices. 
because then at least in theory, and I would say I saw this in our practice in the after school program, um, you're, you're going to have a more efficient lesson. Things are going to run more smoothly. You're going to have less challenges that you have to react to. Uh, students can start to start to take on responsibilities and leadership roles that, that aid in the, in the function of the class. So in the long run, you know, maybe at worst you break even, but at best, maybe it's so efficient that you end up getting more physical activity time than, than you thought you were going to. Yeah. And I would say that that's, that that's a hope, you know, I I think that, you know, the project that Michael and I were really involved in this last, last year with trying to implement restorative practices with a first year teacher in a school that just really didn't care about restorative practices, you know, in action, they talked about it on paper, they had a, you know, a plan on paper, but we realized when we started coaching that teacher to start implementing these, we went back to the basics, Mm -hmm. which was build relationships, affective statements. Now, restorative practices way more than that. You know, there are certain concepts that we could have tried to do, but we agree that there's no way that we're going to get those students in a circle sitting down during physical education class, you know, and there are Mm -hmm. so many other Mm -hmm. issues there of overcrowded classrooms. This teacher had 72 middle schoolers in one period. So like, how are you, even if you are the best teacher out there, how are you going to be able to implement that when it's one period a day? And the five other periods during that day don't care about it. There's no follow through. So I think that, you know, if somebody were to start doing this stuff, start doing it very little, like little tiny bits at a time and understand that how it works in that context. And that's a lot what Helliston talked about in his development of this model, that this model doesn't look the same in every single situation there has to be small adjustments everywhere you go you know yeah so. yeah and the, the i mean the promise that comes from this article i'm reminded of from this article to that point you made risto is that if we can give teachers a chance to have kind of an inquiry process in practice they're quite innovative um at taking these ideas and Restorative practice and TPSR are broad enough that, you know, if we can give teachers the basics and create space for them to reflect on what's happening, to try out new ideas, and then also support them, they can move the needle even in these really challenging situations. I know I was surprised, and you were too, Risto, that, you know, the teacher we worked with who had this class of 70 students ended up finding ways to kind of move the needle on building relationships with those students Mm -hmm. and negotiated different physical activities that they could do during the time they had that just wasn't happening prior to that. And so that type of outcome is just not going to happen from a a two-day workshop on TPSR. Um, It really requires that consistent follow-up and empowerment. And so that, to me, is the biggest takeaway that I'm excited about is like, how can we connect with more of these teachers who can take this and use their creative way, their creative pedagogy to make a difference for kids, but also just help us learn more about uh, the theories behind what we're doing and how it connects up to practice. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that came out of this paper was that action research can have a significant impact on those teachers that go through and follow through with it. So 
I look at this, if you would look at a university model, right? Researchers do, we conduct research because that's part of our job and it's part of the passion of knowing more, right? There are certain other incentives to do things that you might not want to do, right? So certain universities have um, internal grants for class re redesign or curriculum alignment or a junior senior grant to get some money to do something. So what if, this is like my outside the box idea. If a principal gave a $2,000 bonus for any teacher that's willing to do an action research project, document it, and then present the findings at a staff meeting, you know, six months later or whatever, how much would that mm -hmm. increase the motivation for continuous professional development or even just teachers trying new things, going out, doing the research to find out what's available, you know, what are best practices, and then trying to have an attempt at it. Because I, I would think that the vast majority of teachers, not the best teachers that you see that are really active and or you know part of state and national organizations, but the average teacher who might not be as inclined, if you give a money incentive, is that wrong? Is that a good way to do it? I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of things that happen at both the universities that I've been at that wouldn't have been done except for a small token grant that provides extra money in, in that person's pocket. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. really an interesting idea, Risto. Outside of the box, yes, but I think it's an interesting idea. We just have to find yeah, money. And I, yeah, and I, I mean, so it could come from the school district, um, as you mentioned, but it, it could also be written into our grants. Um, that, that we get or, or other people get. I haven't got mm. grants that could fund that. But, um, you know, there are people who have had uh, large grants to reform curriculum and physical education. I'm right. Working with my colleague uh, on Chin on one right now. And, you know, we've, they're funding curriculum development and different things. But what a really good idea that would be to carve out resources for teachers to do an action research project like this to kind of put this work into practice in ways that fit their particular context. Yeah. I think one, one challenge would be um, giving them the agency. So we give them the $2,000, but then empower them to say, you know, go take this and make it your own. Like don't, you don't have to do it exactly the way I showed you in the workshop or whatever, um, you know, own this process. But, I, you know, I think that has a lot of promise and, and then just embedding it in coursework uh, as Risto is doing is another pathway to continue this work. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Guys, we're uh, coming up on uh, 40 minutes here. So um, any concluding thoughts on, on the paper or anything you want to say that you didn't get in? I'll just add, I mean, for for anybody but if there's you know graduate students out there um i thought this was a really well written paper um and a good example of a study you know that it, it doesn't have to be a hundred participants or you know a large in to get something published a good example of quality work done yes. on a small scale and so i just encourage people to read it particularly those people who might be thinking about what can i do for a dissertation that's feasible Mm -hmm. um maybe you pick up some ideas here yeah great kevin yeah i mean i i, I love uh this kind of work uh, you know i i have a true appreciation for the 
the intensity and commitment it takes to do this kind of work well. Um, uh, and I think that articles like this are, are really good, as Michael said, examples of, of uh, that, can, that can inspire not only researchers, uh, but also practitioners. Um, it'd be great if, uh, you know, a practitioner, an in-service teacher listened to this podcast, um, read the article, uh, and then reached out to a local university if, if they had interest in, in partnering on an action research project. Yep. So, you know, that, that's one way that, that this kind of stuff can spread. And I think that the, the mechanism of this podcast and other, you know, in other forms of social media like uh, Twitter uh, and, and spreading the word on research like this, um, I, I think can make a difference because when you hear the word research, I'm not sure that everybody always thinks about action research, but, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate way for individuals to, to partner with somebody who's knowledgeable to improve their practice in an area. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks guys, appreciate your time. Um, I'm gonna uh, plug both of you here. Um, if you're looking at an online doctorate program in kinesiology, there's one at UNCG. Um, so um, you can contact Michael for that. I know um, Kevin Richards at University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign, has a great program. Uh, Lots of doctoral students up there that are doing really good work. Um, Mason's uh, got open positions for uh, master's degrees that are fully online. Um, PhD program that we're we're kicking up in physical education, teacher education. Um, And again, I'll I'll plug the uh, ARA here. Uh, We have a good group of scholars there. So again, if you're consistently listening to this podcast and you haven't submitted work into ARA, um, SIG 93, I think it's a a great place to, um, you know, put a lot of your work out and see some of the best... um, best work in our field, I think, especially in the uh, North American context. So um, thanks again uh, for joining us. Um, any other uh, final final plugs there? Yeah, where do I go online to apply to, to come do a doctorate with you? Uh, you just have to email me or find me on Twitter and I'll send you all of that information. Um, the School Actually, of Education so- website has a lot of that stuff on there as well. And uh, how do I, would- I find something at uh, University of Illinois? Well, I, I was talking about actually coming and do a doctorate with you myself, but um, you know, wait, at the university, at this point, what? you're you're on you're on task for uh, an honorary doctorate. You don't have to do any work. <laughs> After a certain point, they just give you another one. They're like, oh, very, very nice. <laughs> so uh, to, to find information about our our doctoral program, though, if you just uh, uh, shoot me an email or or call, um, uh, all my stuffs up on the website, uh, and I am on Twitter as well. And, we're always looking for, for good doctoral students who are interested, so definitely feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thank you.